Revelation 4 and 5, and it is difficult to leave these two chapters because these are breathtaking, these are soul-inspiring, and in many ways, this holy heavenly worship is the pinnacle of the book. It is, it is an unbelievable episode that you see in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 with God on his throne, beauty and glory and majesty and, and the elders and the beasts worshiping him. And then you get to chapter 5 when you think it can't get any better and the guest of honor appears. And Jesus, the lamb as he had been slain, comes forth ready to take this book. He's the one that can open the book. He's the one that can open the scrolls. And it's no longer just the elders and beasts that are worshiping, but now you have this, this angelic host and a hundred million. And then in with them comes all of creation, singing and praising, blessing and honor and glory to the Lord. And then you turn the page to chapter number six, after this torrent of praise released to Jesus, and it is a very different chapter. It's difficult to leave these, these chapters really because of what's ahead. The scroll or the book has now changed hands into the hands of Jesus and the right to judge and rule the world has been placed on Jesus now. And now the hammer of God's justice and wrath will begin to fall on the world. That as beautiful as it is to see heaven and to see all of this going on, there's still earth. And what's happening on earth? What is going to happen on earth? And that's what chapters six through basically 18 are about. And chapters six through 18, frankly, are the chapters why pastors don't wanna preach this book. They are heavy, they are dark, they are sombering in many ways, but we need to know what they say. And I'll give you an overview of what we'll have. Chapters 6 through 18 basically contain for us three sets of judgments. Each of these sets are a set of seven. So you would have seven seals at first, then you're going to have seven trumpets, then you're going to have seven vials. And you will get kind of this overview of, of seals and trumpets and vials, and then you'll at certain points zoom in and you will anticipate more or you'll get a little bit more clarity or color around what's happening. But in chapter six, you get the overview of this day of wrath, part of it, and these seals that are opened up and this judgment that is coming. Now, a quick note before we read the text. All of this, the seals, the trumpets, and the judgment are all God's wrath, but in slightly different forms. You would have Passive wrath in the Bible, you would have active wrath in the Bible. Passive wrath being have it your way. Do what you want, see how it goes. You would find Romans 1 talks about this, that God even does this with some people today. Active wrath would be God really inserting himself. What you'll find in the seals is the passive wrath of God and God basically letting humans do what humans do and it doesn't go well. Then you would have kind of another version of passive wrath where God lets Satan do kind of what Satan wants to do, and that's in the trumpets. Then you will eventually get to the vials and the active wrath of God where God really begins to insert himself. So you have, the point is that you would have in chapter number six, this wrath of God, but it will be things that you and I will relate with. 
You'll read this one and that one and say, I, I, I see some of that today because it's mankind. And what you find more or less is the seeds of evil being brought to fruition and blooming in a fuller way. And it's not pretty. This is because God is allowing it to happen. It's also because the church is now removed and the restraint is gone in large part. And now the world is kind of off the leash, so to speak, and you don't have the salt and light of the church there to proclaim and to be a beacon of, of hope or provide morals even, and here's what happens. So let's read chapter number six, verse number one, and if you're thinking, this is a strange sermon for a baby dedication, you would be right. It's just the next sermon that was up and it's, it's where it landed, so we're taking it as it falls and just letting the text guide. Seals one, two, three, and four are going to be what some have called the four horsemen or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Raise of hands if you've ever heard of the four horsemen. And I'm not talking about the WWE, Ric Flair, wrestling quartet. You know what I'm talking about? These are the four horsemen and you'll, and you'll see why they're called that in, in a moment. But these are, not, uh, these are not good steeds. You don't want to own these, okay? These are representative of the major players of human death and suffering and so here we go, verse one. Deception and peaceful conquest. I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder and one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold, a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now we will get much more detail on this later on in Revelation, but we'll at least get a primer today with this. At the beginning of the tribulation or the beginning of the day of wrath, you would find that a dark prince on a white horse enters the scene as a victorious leader. That's the idea of conquering, the idea of a crown being given to him. And commentators have long pointed out that this figure white horse, conquering, leading, crown, looks eerily similar to the end of the book when Jesus comes on a, right, on a white horse with crowns as the leader and the conqueror, that they look very close to the same. And you would find that Daniel, Jesus, the apostle Paul, all speak of this one who will come, who will be a deceiver, who is known most... Uh, most of the time as the Antichrist, although he has lots of names, but will come and will want to unite the world and lead the world. And at first he will do this with peace. And at first he will do this with treaties and people will laud and celebrate him and say, this is the leader that we've been looking for, not just in our nation, but an amalgamation of nations will come together under this one leader, but that will not be peaceful for very long. He will get the loyalty, he will get the unity of these nations, but it will dissolve quickly and will fall off the rails. But this is talking about that one who will come. The one who will deceive and will lead people into peaceful conquest and governments will unite under him, this final dictator that will promote world peace, but only for a short time. Because seal number two tells you what will happen and that's division and bloodshed. Verse number three, when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse and it was red. And power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace 
from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. This idea of bloodshed and war and peace being taken and people being set against each other to fight and not just fight with their words or vitriol, but to literally kill each other. And don't we already see this, right? We already see, as John would have even said in 1 John, the spirit of Antichrist in our day or people that want to deceive and people that want to feign themselves as something that is holy or good or true, but in fact is not. And we already see the seeds of this, of war and bloodshed. That every Christmas, Kelly Clarkson's uh, My Grown-Up Christmas Wish plays on the radio and Kelly wishes over and over again every Christmas that no more lives would be torn apart and that wars would never start and that time would heal all hearts. But the wish doesn't come true, wish as she may. That this continues to unfold, not even close to her wish coming true, that there's war and division and bloodshed. Why? Because our hearts are bent towards this. And if you doubt that our hearts are bent towards this, just consider the fact that we do baby dedication and not toddler dedication, okay? Why do we not do toddler dedication? Because it'd be mayhem up here. If you've ever been in the nursery, you know this to be the truth, that as cute and cuddly and awesome as they are right now, give it a couple years and one of those kids will go in the nursery and walk up to another one of those kids who's playing with a toy and will snatch that toy out of his hand for one reason and one reason alone. Not to play with it, not to give it to someone else who wants it. He'll take that toy so he can whack the other kid in the head with it. And then satisfied, he'll lay the toy down and go to a corner and bite some other kid. Like that is how it goes, right? And if you're like, no, not my little angel. Yes, you're a little angel. My, my child has been bit in the nursery on, on numerous occasions. You're like, I do not want to put my kid in the nursery. Look, kids are kids, Okay. And you know what I tell myself? You know, that's not good. We're, we're gonna try to make sure that doesn't happen again. But he's gonna do it to somebody else one day. Like, take your lumps, man. That's humans. We're bent towards this. We're pent up and we're angry, are we not? Now, as Christians, we shouldn't be. The fruit of the Spirit should manifest itself in our lives and there should be love and joy and peace and long-suffering. But don't we see people that are angry and people that are pent up? The rise of rage rooms has been of interest to me. I don't know if you're familiar with rage rooms. They're rooms that are uh, enclosed and you put on some protective goggles and they play loud music and you get a baseball bat and you get to break whatever you want in the room for an allotted amount of time, however much you paid for. That you just get to go take out all of your rage on whatever these things are. And half of you deep down are thinking, that sounds like a decent time. Because <laughs> there's a bit pin up. And I'll be honest, there's days where that sounds like a decent time to me. It shouldn't, but it does. Because we bend this way and there will be the, these wars that come. General Omar Bradley once said, and he died in the 80s, so this was a considerable amount of time ago. But he said about his generation, we know more about war than peace. We know more about killing than living. We have too many men of science and too few men of God. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom. We've achieved power without conscience. We are a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. 
And this will be a time where the nuclear giants and ethical infants take the stage and live life as they think best. Seal number three is deprivation and widespread famine. Verse number five, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, this time a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. And here's what it said. A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. And see that thou hurt not the oil and wine. Now I have to explain what this means because we're not buying measures of wheat much longer. Uh, and this is just not our day and age. So a measure of wheat was what it took to make a meal. A penny was not our penny, one cent. A penny or a denarii in that day was a day's wages. And it's saying that there's this day where it's very commonplace that to get a meal, you need an entire day's worth of work, a day's wages to get your peanut butter and jelly and some strawberries. Now that's not good news. I don't know how your budget's set up, but I know it's not set up on a one day of work for one meal scenario. I know that much. The scales that it talks about in the first verse is, is talking about this poverty rationing and making sure that food's rationed out properly because there's not enough food to go around in this, this time of deception and an antichrist coming up, this time of war and bloodshed, this time of famine. And doesn't that make sense? The famine and being without oftentimes follow war. And verse six points out something that is super interesting to me and something that I think we see under our noses already. It says a meal for a, day, a day's wage, but then it says, do not hurt the oil and the wine. Now, let me put that in modern vernacular for you. They have electric cars, but they have no electricity. No wheat, no barley, you're starving, but there's oil and wine to go around. That they have nothing that they do need and everything that they don't need. That the staples are missing, but the luxuries are still present. And it's trying to communicate what will happen. But your electric car don't matter if you can't keep the lights on. You can't eat a Wi-Fi signal as fast as it is. Those things will not matter. And it's saying they have nothing that they do need and everything that they don't. And just let that sink in for a moment. This is, is not happening yet with our food as this is talking about in famine. But I think in an existential way, it is happening. That how many people have everything yet nothing at the same time? Is not this the banner over our society? that so many people have all of these items and all these luxuries and all of these things and all these ways to, to measure themselves against society and feel good about themselves, but when it's all said and done, are just lacking the most basic things like love or joy or peace. One author put it this way. He said, the brutal fact is this, the average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. He or she has little family, Few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and certainly no Christ. He or she exists mostly as a ritual of economic activity, a number on a balance sheet. And there are a lot of people that live in our culture that would relate with that and say, you know what? I don't know what I'm living for. I feel like a cog in an economic machine. And if you think that's bad, 
Wait until you're a cog in a broken economic machine. That's worse. And this is saying there will be this time of war. There will be this time of famine. Do we have famine now? Yes. Do we have war now? Do we have deception now? Yes. But this will be in a fuller way. It will come on the world. Seal number four is death to a quarter of the earth. Number seven, verse number seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see and behold a pale horse. Now, I don't know if you know this, but pale's not a color of a crayon, okay? We had a white horse, okay, that's a crayon. Black horse, red horse, those are crayons. Pale, what is that? It's describing this color, if you look at the root of the word, actually sometimes it's translated green. It's a, it's a yellowish green. I heard one pastor say, it's the color of gross. It's the color of death. If you've ever been around those that are about to die or right after they die, you know this yellowish green pale color of death. And here this pale rider comes, or the pale horse, and the name that sat on him was death, and hell followed him. That's the way it works. Death receives the body, hell receives the soul. And if you continue in Revelation, you'll find out that death and hell produce up the body and the soul for a judgment and then the eternal lake of fire is the way that it unfolds if you don't know Jesus. But here's death and hell followed and power was given unto him over a fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, seal two, to kill with hunger, seal three, to kill with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And I don't know entirely what beasts of the earth means. Some think it means that, you know, the tigers are gonna go rabid and kill more people. I personally think that it means that oftentimes disease and death is just passed through the animal kingdom. That the fleas on a rat or the, the virus that starts in a bat or whatever it is, is oftentimes pa passed through those animals. But you can know this, that seal number four is death in a quarter of the earth. And I don't, I don't know how to, how to describe that. I don't know that we can fully wrap our heads around that. You know, it took us until the early 1800s to reach a billion people on earth. 1804, I believe the year was. It took another 123 years to reach 2 billion people on earth, 1927. To hit 3 billion, it took about 40 years. And since 3 billion, about every 12 years, there's another billion. We're now at 8 billion people. So this is today. You're talking about 2 billion people dying in a very short period of time. We cannot wrap our head around that. We, we, can't, we cannot begin to comprehend how this is laughing at the hospitals and laughing at the medicine and laughing at our best technology and death just being rampant. I mean, think about if, if like literally in a span of a couple of years, a quarter of this room was just gone or a quarter of your workplace was, was gone, was dead. It's death like, like we've never known. It goes on to say, in case you thought that that was, you know, oh, there's something real smiley and happy coming in seal number five. No, there's not. There's divine vengeance that's prayed for. Verse number nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? 
And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So here's the picture to give you the, the bird's eye view of the Bible. There is this rapture that happens of the church and this ushers in a time of tribulation and great tribulation and the church is gone. And you would find in the New Testament, it's clear that those that have heard the gospel and have rejected Jesus and have said no to Jesus will believe a lie and they, they will not end up coming to faith. But the Bible never says that people will not be saved during a, a time of tribulation, quite the opposite in fact. And some have, have heard that or seen that in a movie or something that you know once the rapture happens, nobody will, will come to Jesus or no one will come to faith. And that's not true. There will be people that do come to faith and are martyred even in this period. Uh, most specifically, the Jewish nation kind of wakes up and begins to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And you find that this tribulation actually has a purpose. It, it shakes up the world, but it wakes up the Jewish nation. But it also, um, God begins to make up a new heaven and a new earth through this process. But this is talking about those that do come to faith, but they are immediately seen as against the agenda of what the world has set out. And they're against the Antichrist. We'll get into later that they will not receive the mark of the beast and that they are martyred for this and killed for this. More to come on that, but this, this will happen. And this is portraying the scenario of these martyrs asking God, how long? You know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Isn't it about time? Pour out the vengeance. Go get them. How long do we have to wait? And God's saying, hey, not yet. Be patient. Just a, a little bit more time. Not a lot, a little bit, but be patient. And I think we can all relate with that to some degree. Maybe not in the exact sense of, of that text, but we can all relate with God telling us, wait a little while longer when we're throwing up our hands and saying, God, how long? It's a very human moment. God, how long? Like, how long do I have to wait to have a baby? They, they have one. I want one. How long do I have to wait to be married? I've been wanting a spouse for like 10 years now. Come on. God, how, how long before you save my family member? I've been witnessing them and praying for them for, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. We all have these moments of, of how long. We can get that. And God's saying, hey, my timetable is my timetable. Trust me. I'm gonna take care of it. But you have this is presented as a negative for the world. And it would be. The only chance that the world has of being saved from greater wrath is to actually respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. And you'll find that they are, they are not just excommunicating, but executing those that are now bearing the name of Jesus in that society. And they are, they're beheading them. They're doing away with them. And this is the world cutting off its nose to smite its face. They are they're doing themselves a disservice as they continue to remove what little salt and light comes into the society to remove that. And then the last thing you want, if you're the world, are a bunch of martyrs putting a bug in God's ear to really put the hammer down on you. But that's what's happening. And this is not pretty for the world. And it's describing what this time of tribulation will look like. Verse, not verse number six, seal number six. Verse number 12, disruptions on a cosmic level. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth 
even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So you can get this. If you've ever seen a tree in the fall, be, the leaves are changing colors and leaves are about to fall and then a big windstorm comes through and now your whole yard is covered with leaves. This is saying that like those leaves falling in a the wind, there are asteroids and meteors and things hailing towards the planet and just bombarding planet Earth. Earthquakes coming. The heaven, verse 14, departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, saying the heavens were shut up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, everything shifting around. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men, they led the world into victory and gave them hope. That's not what it says. Every bondman and free man, they hid themselves and dens and rocks and mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Where are the presidents? Where are the rulers? Where are the people that are supposed to lead society through the dark, bismal, cataclysmic times? Hold up. And the mountains and in their bunkers trying to wait it out and saying, man, maybe we're better if we were dead. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? And the irony of this moment is, is so profound that you have seal five, the martyr saying like, God, let them have it. Come on, get with it. And then you have the people on earth saying like, stop, it's too much. We can't take anymore. And this is just the beginning. This is the passive wrath of God and letting just earth run its course. Wait till you see the passive wrath of God where he lets Satan do his thing unhinged. And then when you see the active wrath of God and he begins to pour out his wrath in an even more profound way, this is the warm up. But at this point, they're saying, who can stand? And I love that question. We'll answer it next week. But the idea of go toe-to-toe with Jesus and see if he doesn't buckle your knees, that idea. The idea that he is in charge, that the scroll is given unto him, and that he will buckle the knees of anyone who tries to square up with him. The idea, and I, I, this is such a great picture for the church to have of a Jesus who you don't flex on. You don't get the upper hand with him. You don't win in a game of chicken with him, but a Jesus who's not baby Jesus as much as I love Christmas, as much as I love six pound, eight ounce, baby Jesus, warm sentiment and hope. It's not baby Jesus anymore. And it's not, it's not Jesus on the cross anymore. As much as I love the suffering Messiah and the lamb that was slain, the one who willingly is obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, that's beautiful, but it's no longer baby Jesus and it's no longer suffering on a cross Jesus, but it is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is fierce and who wins the battle who you do not want to trifle with. It's that picture, and the church needs to have a fuller, grander picture of that Jesus. The one who is worthy, the one who is in charge of everything, the one who can judge anything, the one who calls all the shots, and the one who you cannot stand against. And there is this big idea, at the very least, that Jesus is in charge of it all. That Jesus is the one who is in control, and that he's not a pushover. 
And I'm grateful for that. I, I am grateful that I have a God that you can't beat up. I'm real, real glad about that. I'm grateful that I have a God who will be just and will administer punishment and wrath where it is needed. I don't wanna live in a world where those who are evil and malicious can just run around and do whatever they want. And if, and if our cops or our FBI or our criminal system doesn't take care of business, then they get off scot-free and they never have to answer for their sins. I don't wanna live in that world. Do you? That's, that's not beautiful to me. Some have said that religion's the opium of the masses because it gives people just all this hope that there'll be this, one, there'll be this heaven thing one day in the sky and it just causes all these people to hope and it just kind of dulls them out. I argue the opposite. The idea of atheism and that there is no God is the opium of the masses because now I can do whatever I want without any consequences coming my way. And I never have to be accountable to a power bigger than me. That is dulling me out and let me do whatever I want. That this idea in the Bible that Jesus will judge that there is wrath that comes is a good idea. Say, Pastor, I thought that God was, was loving. He is loving. The justice of God demands that he, that he deal with sin. He can't wink at it and he can't shove it under the rug or else he wouldn't be just. The love of God demands that he provide a way of escape from our sin. And the justice and love of God meet in the cross where justice is administered and Jesus bears the weight of our sins and we are offered an opportunity to respond to him in faith and he will take away our sins and forgive our sins and give us not wrath, but give us a home in heaven. And that is merciful and that is gracious and that is beautiful. But if you spurn that graciousness and you resist that mercy and you reject the love of Jesus in the cross, then that is only for a time and you... and. Be aware, wrath is next. The love of God has a long wick, a very long wick, but eventually that wick reaches its end and it is not pretty. That is the picture of God that you get. Fully loving, fully gracious, fully long-suffering, fully merciful, but fully holy and fully just at the same time. And may this chapter not just be well, hey, I know some things that are gonna happen. I have a little bit of a picture of what a tribulation would, would look like. Now I know some stuff. This isn't meant just to be for your knowledge that puffs you up. May it incite us to get a grand picture of the Lord Jesus. May it incite us and may it even be a springboard for evangelism. I don't know what would put a fire in your bones and motivate you to share the good news of Jesus with other people, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, the random person you just met. I don't know what would do that, but perhaps this would. The idea of the good news, that while this is portrayed for us here, we can rest assured as Christians that that wrath isn't for us, that those days are not for us. The chapters four and five are for us. The idea that we're spared from this and the idea that we would wanna tell other people because we would wanna see them spared from this, should this not be a catalyst 
to say, you know what, this is coming in time, but it's not this time. Now is the time to redeem the time because the days are evil. Now is the time to open our mouth. Now is the time to to be salt and light. Now is the time to to share the message and to say, you know what? I'm not responsible for everybody. I'm only responsible for me, but I have the message and I want other people to know. I dare say that all of this judgment and all this heaviness that is there should cause us to want to share good news with people to say, you can be saved from this. You can be saved from your sin. You can be saved from death. You can be saved from hell. Jesus is a savior. He'll save you. So let's not as a church just look at what will be and say we know something. Let's look at what will be and say, I don't want someone to go through that. Not even my worst enemy. And may we step up to the plate And tell people, God is loving, and God is gracious, and God is merciful, and he's offered you a way of escape. But if you will not take that way of escape, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Both of those are true. And both of those the world needs to know. I'm not sure why you came to faith. Some of you came to faith because you saw someone else in your life who was a Christian and it was so magnetic that you just said, I want what they have. Some of you came to faith because someone told you that hell was real and that God's wrath was not something that you just sneeze at and it scared the fire out of you and you wanted to escape it. I'm fine with both. I'm fine with anything in between. As Jude would say, some we save with compassion, but some we warn, we pull them out of the fire. May that, may that be a catalyst for us to say, okay, I see Revelation 6 and there's more to come on this, but I see this and I don't wanna be someone who has everything but has nothing. I don't wanna be someone who lives for nothing. I could at least live for this. I could live for Jesus. I mean, he died for me after all. There's purpose. There is purpose and sharing our faith with a lost and dying world. There is a mission in that. And may we all be a part of that. May it never be true of a Christian that we have nothing to live for, never. May we look at what's to come and say, this is a springboard for us. And if you don't know Jesus, come to him today. I don't know your story, I don't know I don't know the grief or the hurt or the hypocrisy you've seen in the church or any of the rest of it, but I know this much. I wouldn't want this. I wouldn't want Revelation 6. And Jesus provides you with an opportunity to say yes to him. And when you say yes to him, he says yes to you. And it's in that moment that wrath is gone and judgment in this sense is gone and hell is no longer in your future. But forgiveness and grace and heaven and love, that's the best offer you could ever have. So if you've never said yes, my invitation would be say yes to him today.